Welcome to the Parent University Podcast. Parent University is a monthly training seminar for parents of teenagers here at Perimeter Church. It is our desire to come alongside families by equipping them to lead their children in a biblical, God-honoring way. We hope you enjoy the following talk. As Rip said, we are going through Daniel, and uh, this is a great book for us to go through because, A, it, it takes... How do we take Old Testament stuff, which I think for a lot of us is difficult, and apply it to our lives, right? And try to figure out, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we make that relevant to the things that we're dealing with on a regular basis? And I think this particular book is very, uh, very effective in thinking through the worldview that we, that we need to develop. Because Daniel was about, you know, 17 or so when he moved to Babylon. He entered into this, this uh, very secular or very non-Jewish worldview, right? And he had to live among a people that were not his people. He had to grow and interact. And how did he do that? How did he survive in that environment? And not only survive, but he thrived. And I think that's important for us as we're trying to raise kids in a post-Christian United States, right? And for a lot of us, uh, that's a scary thing. And we want to kind of go in the fetal position sometimes, or we want to put a bunker around our kids and say, hey, uh, it's too scary out there. And Daniel didn't really have a choice, right? He, he got pulled away from Jerusalem and injected into this other culture. And so it was just a completely different uh, scenario for him, and he didn't have a choice in it. And so I think it's, it's good for us to look at that. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last month, um, check out the podcast that, that we had from that because there was a lot in chapter one. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. This, this week we have two or three main points I want to make, but last week I almost couldn't fit everything in. There was about 10 things to bring up, and really we could have done two different lessons on chapter one. There was so much in there. And so I encourage you to go back and, and listen to the podcast for that. Um, as we get into chapter two, uh, most of you are familiar with Daniel, and it's a really long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell it in, in my own words, just to remind you, if you haven't read it recently. And um, let me go ahead and pray before we do that. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these parents, and Lord, uh, help us to raise our kids in this, uh, in this culture that is not a Christian culture, but you have called us to have kids at such a time as this. You will equip us to raise our kids, to engage the culture, and to be salt and light in this place. And so we ask you, Lord, as we study your word, that you would teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, and teach us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so Daniel chapter 2, just the context. So Daniel and his friends um, were taken out of, and I always think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, have, they actually have Jewish names too, which is, uh, let me see if I can find it again, because um, their, their Hebrew names are awesome. It's uh, Mishael, oh, I can't find it. And when I look down, I just see words, so that's not going to help me. Um, but, but they have Hebrew names. They've all been given Babylonian names, remember, and they, they move over. And in Daniel chapter one, right, Daniel goes to the, to the chief eunuch and says, I want to not eat the food everybody else is eating. And he kind of creates a test for himself. He says, test me and see if the way that we're going to do things isn't better than the way you want to do things. And so he really draws a line in the sand and he sets himself apart, him and his friends. And it ends up working out well for them, right? It could have put them, their lives in danger. It, it, he drew a line 
that was uh, separated him. And at the end of three years of training, he got trained in the culture of Babylon. He got trained in the language of Babylon. And at the end of those three years, he and his friends were found to be more learned and better than all of the other captives that they had, because they had people from all different countries, not just uh, Jews from, from Jerusalem and Judea, but they had people from all over. And so he and his friends automatically were raised up uh, in that new group of captives after three years of training, okay? So I just want to give you that as a context, because now we're moving into a crisis that really is created in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was the one who had conquered the world, and he was really one of the first kings in all of the ancient world to set up this massive empire, okay? And it covered, you know, all the way from Egypt over throughout the entire Middle East, and, and he had this huge empire, and so he has this horrible dream, and that kind of sets the stage for the, the beginning of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it's a horrible dream, and we don't know if he had it every night, but it says that he, his sleep left him, whether it was one night or whether he had it over and over again, we're not sure. But he, it's a crisis that's created, and he calls together all of his wise men. Now, the words they use for wise men are sorcerers, enchanters, you know, uh, and they use all these different terms, different kinds of people who have risen to be uh, advisors to the king, really. And so you have these enchanters and sorcerers and things like that. And Daniel and his friends are listed among them. They're part of the king's court, and they have, have that ability to, to enter in and to advise the king. But Daniel and his friends are not really at that level to go right before the king. Remember, they're, they're brand new into this. So they're probably lower level guys at this point, because they're not in that initial meeting. The king calls together the sorcerers and his advisors and wise men, and he says, I've had a horrible dream, and I need you to tell me what it means. Well, of course, what they say is, well, king, tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. Now, the king here is pretty smart, He's, and he says, how am I going to know that what you tell me is true unless you tell me the dream first? If I don't tell you the dream at all, and you tell me what the dream is, then you tell me what it means, I'll know that you really have some power and that you really know something. And so he kind of throws that out there for them and says, you tell me the dream. And they say, nobody can do that. There is no one who is skilled enough to give you all of that information to tell you the dream. No person can do that. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. Now, it's possible, I think, it's possible he didn't remember the dream. I don't know if you've woken up from a nightmare and you, you are terrified and you know something major you dreamed, but either you can't remember or maybe you start to lose it as, as you wake up. I also wonder if that's not a possible in this situation. We don't know which is the case, but either way, he's got their number, and he's saying, you could just lie to me and tell me whatever I want to hear. Now, I'm amazed at the ruthlessness of the ancient Near East, right? And Because what he says next is, if you don't tell me what this dream means, I am going to destroy you, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to tear your house down. Okay, now that's just pretty stark. You know, we, we face trials in our day and age, but to be to say, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to get a bulldozer out, and there will be no record that you ever lived because I'm going to destroy everything about you. It's pretty amazing. So he has laid the gauntlet down, and he, he really offers, I'm going to incredibly bless you if you can help me out here, and I'm going to utterly destroy you if you don't. And that's the contrast that he makes. Well, the, the head of 
the king's guard goes and starts to carry out this order because nobody can answer his question. The king's infuriated, and in his rage, he's like, okay, kill them all. And so he goes, and they start going down the line to, to kill everybody, and that's when Daniel discovers what's going on because he wasn't, he wasn't even high enough to be in that initial meeting. So Daniel goes in there, and he meets with the king, or he, he meets with this king of the, uh, the head of the guard, and he says, please don't destroy us. Go to the king and ask, ask him just to give us a little more time. So he goes to his friends, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, I need you to pray with me, and let's ask the God of heaven to do this. Now, he doesn't really have a choice in a lot of ways, right? He's going to be killed if this doesn't happen. So he goes, his friends, they, they, they pray together and ask the Lord, and then that night, or, or in the next night, the Lord gives him a vision of what the dream is and the interpretation, he has an amazing long passage in there where he does like a, a, a prayer to God, you know, where he's like, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom bring, he brings wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. And he goes through this and he praises God. Then he goes back to the head of the king's guard, says, I've got the answer. Let me see the king. He goes before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells the dream. Now, the dream, if you remember, was a statue that was, uh, it had a head of gold, a chest and arms that were made of silver, then thighs and, and legs of bronze, and then feet of iron and clay. And he says, this is what you dreamed, and it represents your kingdom. Uh, that there, you, ha- you are king, and you are the king of kings, and so you have the gold head, and the gold head represents Nebuchadnezzar. And then he goes down that the rest of the body is kingdoms that will raise up after you. The Medes, we believe that it's the Medes and Persians is the silver part of the body. The bronze part is the Greek empire that came after that through Alexander the Great. And that the iron and clay represents the Roman empire. And then he says a, a stone is cut out of a mountain and crushes this statue and sends everything into, into the, the wind like chaff and then that, grow, that stone grows into a mountain, and it's a kingdom of itself that has no end. And that represents Christianity. And if you think about it, that's exactly what happened to the Roman Empire, right? Christianity rose up within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is no more, but yet Christianity still continues to grow today as God is building his kingdom through us uh, all around the world. And the kingdom is growing and growing and growing. So when he tells this story to Nebuchadnezzar and he interprets it, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Well, he bows down and makes himself prostrate and says, there is a God in heaven. And, it, and Daniel totally gives God the credit, too. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm the best magician you have. Let me tell you this. He says, there is no one who can interpret this but God. And then he tells him the dream. He gives credit completely to God for what happened. And he lays out that case before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar honors him. Daniel raises up his friends and says, help, you know, put my friends in a high position as well. And I think, and that's kind of where, where we end. And he saves all the other magicians and sorcerers. Okay. So that's kind of, that's the, the story of Daniel chapter two, uh, in a nutshell. Now, as we go through this, there are several things I think that are, uh, that affect us or that we can glean from this as we are raising kids in Babylon in this time and in this place. Um, the first thing is that 
A crisis was created, and there are problems. He had a horrible crisis, and of course, he's not a believer in the one true God, so he's going to look for a worldly solution to his problem. Nebuchadnezzar goes out looking for an answer that is not a God-centered answer. And I think that's a temptation for all of us as well. And now he's not a believer, so of course that's, that's the way he's going to go. That's the path he's going to go. And you and I interact with people all the time, and even we are tempted constantly, right, to go to a non-Christian answer for the problems that we face. Um, our kids are tempted to go and find a non-Christian answer for the problems that we face. But this crisis is definitely here, and it's definitely a crisis. It's amazing to me that God created this crisis. Have you ever really thought about that? If you stop to think about who gives dreams to kings, God does. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar just had this dream on his own. God is the one who gave him the dream and created the crisis. God is the one who put Daniel in danger and his friends from the very beginning. Even say, in hindsight, as we look at it, we can say, well, probably God used this crisis to raise Daniel up. Because obviously we know the end of the story. As a result of the crisis, what happens to Daniel and his friends? They go from being low-level nobodies in the king's court to now, at the end, they're in charge of Babylon. And they have very high positions. And so God uses this crisis and the way that it works out in the lives of of Daniel and his friends to elevate them. Now, going back to the, just the beginning of this crisis, though, if God, God gives the crisis and he brings those crises in our lives and he wants us to go to him for the answer for that. Now, how does, how does that work out uh, you know, for us as we think God could have said to Daniel, he could have said, hey, I'm getting ready to give the king a dream, right? He could have said, I'm going to give the king a dream, and it's going to be horrible, and he's going to want to kill everybody, but don't worry, I'm going to give you the answer. And then Daniel wouldn't have sweated at all, right? He would have been like, okay, this is all part of God's plan. This is great. But he didn't do that. And he doesn't do that with us, does he? He doesn't give us the answer when he creates the crises in our lives. I can think years ago when Cammie and I were in Russia as exchange students, we interacted with some missionaries, and this is all the way back in like 93, 93. 93, 94. And Russia had just opened up, and we lived in St. Petersburg, and we interacted with a lot of missionaries because everything opened up, some missionaries were coming in, but the mafia was like growing like crazy as well, and the black market and everything was going crazy in Russia. And like if we would go to a restaurant, all that would be in there is foreigners and mafia, like because they're the only ones who had money. And so the Americans would kind of interact with mafia at different times, and you'd see them, and you could tell, I mean, they, they had this uniform, you know, they had the leather jacket, and you could, tell, you could tell a mafia person right away. And one of our friends who was a missionary got in a car wreck after leaving a restaurant and got in a car wreck with a mafia guy. Well, what happens when you're in a third world country uh, and you get in the wreck with a powerful mafia figure for you? Um, you know, they, the, the, the opportunity they had was, he, he said, I'm going to kill you, basically. Fix my car, because he was driving a Mercedes, it's going to cost like thousands of dollars, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your life. I don't remember if it was and or or, but it was, it was bad. <laughs> now you think, imagine, and this was like a little mousy missionary girl, she's like 25, no money, living, on, living in Russia, and so she... What does she do? She's at a crisis point, 
Did God not know she was going to run into this guy and wreck his car? God knew that. So what does she do with that crisis? She goes to her friends, just like Daniel did, and they prayed, and they prayed, Lord, deliver me from this situation. Now, they didn't say exactly what to do, but they said, deliver me. And guess what happened? In like a week, another mafia guy took that guy out and killed him. Now, you and I can think that's a coincidence that he was engaged in, he was a mafia figure, it's not a good situation, but does our God intervene in space and time to protect his children when they go to him in prayer? I believe so. I think their prayers were a part of that. Now, they didn't, I don't, I don't think they said take him out. They may have, but that's what ended up happening. Um, I wanted to say, will you guys pray for me after hearing that because that was pretty amazing. So we have these crisis moments in our life and God brings them. And I think that's hard for us. It's hard for us to think about that. So the question for you is, do you view these crises as opportunities from God's hand? Do you view when God brings a crisis into your life as an opportunity from God? It's a test from God. Um, And how we witness to our kids, how we live out when we face these crises I think is a pivotal moment for us because our kids, remember, they're watching us in our lives. They're watching how we live our lives and they want to see, is this faith that we say we have, right? We take them, we drag them to church every Sunday. We, you know, we're, we, is it real? When life hits the fan, do we go to God? And so when you lose your job, are you just mad at God? Are you in crisis? Or do you go to God and say, and go to your family and say, hey, God has brought this into our lives, and we're going to turn to him for the solution. When you have cancer or get diagnosed with something like that, do you turn to God and say, we're looking to you for the answer? I was at, we were at the uh, thing for Kylie Myers this Friday. I don't know if you all are aware she's a student at Perimeter who has bone cancer, and it's horrible. Um, and her dad got up, and it was just an incredibly powerful moment as he's talking and telling everybody about this and thanking everybody for coming, and they had a big big fundraiser barbecue thing. And, and, but he said, my life's been pretty good, and I praise God when things are good. And I don't understand this, but right now, I just want to praise God for bringing this trial into my life. And he did. You know, he lifted his hands, and he prayed and praised God right there. I mean, it was an incredibly powerful moment to see this man lead his family the way that Job led his family, right? This, this reminds me of, of a situation with Job, like in Job 1. And you remember, if you haven't read Job recently, Job, everything is taken from Job. All his kids die. He loses everything in chapter 1. It's a pretty devastating chapter. And at the end of losing everything, Job says this. He says, Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we have an opportunity when we face the crisis in our lives to 
turn to God for a God-centered solution, but also to model for our kids that because they face crises, crises in their lives, right? They face crises, and they, to us, don't seem like major crises. You know, I was, I was telling Cammie, I don't, I don't know if I'd even told her before, but at my senior year, I played basketball all through high school. And to me, basketball was everything. I, mean, I, would, I would go play in junior high for five, six hours a day. I would go up to the park by my, by my house and push snow off the outdoor court to play basketball. I mean, it was basketball, basketball, basketball. And I got cut from the team my senior year. Like, going through high school, your senior year is the pinnacle of your sporting career, and I played multiple sports, and so my coach just had too many seniors. He needed to cut some. I was in football practice, and so, you know, for him, it was a pretty easy decision. For me, it was devastating. That was a crisis for me. And as a parent, when we look at our kids' crisis, sometimes we think, oh, you got cut from the team. That's not a big deal. But for a senior in high school, that's a really big deal. Uh, when you break up with that first girlfriend or boyfriend, that's a really big deal. When you don't get into the school you want to go to, right, the college you want to go to, that's a really big deal. When you lose a friendship or face a boss at work that you don't like or, you know, whatever. All of these are crises. And how do we tell our kids, hey, the way you handle this crisis, God put this crisis in your life. And that changes everything, right? The perspective that we have changes everything in how we deal with it. You know, for example, if you sit in class and there's a huge, like, bully sitting next to you, a guy who's known, you know, who's, who I, had, I remember I had one in history class when I was in high school. I remember this guy sitting next to me. He'd be, he looked like he'd failed, you know, his junior year like four times. He looked like 25 or something. You know, knuckles dragged to the ground, this big bruising guy. And he would, he would be like, let me see your paper. I mean, we'd have a quiz, and he would be like, let me see your paper. And I'd be like, okay. You know, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not, not going to know. You're not going to say. I'd be like, whatever you want, sir. You know, here, here's my paper. Whatever it takes. And, but I remember I, I dreaded going to that class, right? Because I didn't know how to handle this guy. I didn't know how to do any of that. And that was a crisis in my life. And I wish that I had had a godly perspective. I wish that I'd said, think about it if I'd have said it this way. If I'd have said, Lord, you put this guy in my class. And for some reason, in your providence, he is sitting right next to me. And I know he doesn't know the Lord. What if I had prayed for him every day? What if instead of being fearful and just trying to avoid him, I had tried to engage with him and tried to be nice to him and tried to love him or even reach out to him? You see what a huge difference my perspective in that relationship makes? It makes all the difference in the world in how I view that crisis. And God gives us that opportunity all the time. He gives us that opportunity. You and I have had bosses that we struggle with, right? Or coworkers that we have a hard time with or family members that we have a hard time with. And do our kids hear us complaining about those things, asking God to deliver us from those things, or do we ask God to help us engage with those things? That perspective should make all the difference in our lives, right? And if it makes all the difference in our lives, then we can model that for our kids that it should make all the difference in their lives. The second thing I want to point out here is that God is the one who gave them the, the power structure. God puts those people in our lives. And I love that passage, I think Mark put it up, where he's praising God and he says, he removes kings and he sets up kings. Now that's an amazing thing for Daniel to utter. 
he's saying Nebuchadnezzar is in power because of God. And it's even more powerful when you think his king, his Jewish king, has been deposed and is out. And so he has to say that. When, we're, when, the, when the next election comes around, do we have that attitude? Do we say, God gives us this president? Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that's the president we have because that's who God gave us. And he raised him up, and he will raise up the next one. And we can praise God for that, for whatever reason that he puts that person in power. Do we talk to that about our kids? Do we say to our kids, that's why you have this coach, that's why you have this teacher you, that you struggle with, that's why you have uh, you know, all of these different power structures that are in their lives, because God is the one who raises them up. And then the last point that I want to make is... I can't believe the end of this chapter. When Daniel has, everything is said and done and it's all over, Daniel saves the sorcerers and the enchanters and all these other guys. They're not Jewish. They're not believers. And Daniel is the picture of Christ. He throws himself in front of these non-believers and he says, save them. I mean, that is, that is Jesus. Jesus is right there and he's, and he's, it's pointing to Christ as we see Daniel in this passage. And I don't think that I do that enough. I don't think that I, I want to protect my kids at times from the influences around them. And here's Daniel entering into a very dangerous situation. And I would have said, hey, there is a God. This is the answer. Raise me and my friends up. Now, the Bible says sorcery is evil and that a sorcerer shouldn't live. Right? Witchcraft, sorcery. It says in the Jewish law, you kill them. And I would have said, raise up all the Jews. We're the only ones that are real, that really follow God. Kill everybody else. That's what I would have done. And yet he says, save them all. Do not kill them. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. How are we equipping our kids again to enter into this culture and for them to say, save them? You know, was Daniel friends? He'd been three years now interacting with all these guys. Did he have friendships with all the other uh, ethnic groups that were in there that didn't believe in the true God? Probably he did. He had to work with them every day. He interacted with them all the time. And I think there was a part of him that loved some of them. He had friendships. He didn't want them to die. And it encouraged our kids to do the same thing, right? To enter into uh, the world. I, I think years ago I was, uh, and I'll close with this, and Cammie's going to come up. I, uh, I was a restaurant manager at O'Charlie's for a brief period of time. Yes, their roles are amazing. Um, and when I was a restaurant manager, I was one of the only Christians on the entire staff. And I knew that I could be a salt and light there, but again, I didn't have that perspective that I talked about. I did not go home and pray for all my employees every day. I didn't go home and just say, wow, I can really have an influence here. I wanted to be righteous and I wanted to be different. That's about as far as it went. And I grieve that time. I constantly think, look back to that and say, wow, what an opportunity that I had to really have an impact and to really be the hands and feet of Christ, to love them. And I, and I just kind of blew it. And so, you know, I want to close with that, that Daniel threw himself in there uh, for our sake. So Cammie's going to come now and bring us a little... What do I bring? You know, what you bring. Just what do, do I it. Bring? Whatever okay. it is, it's going to be whatever awesome. Whatever I do. Something, That's just what I say. Whatever, whatever you want, honey. It's going to be awesome. I love that answer. That's my favorite answer. Um, 
Hi, I'm glad y'all are here. Um, these ideas of Daniel, I'll be honest with you, in the heart of a mama are hard to live out, right? Like, as parents, we um, hear that God is, God brings the crises. And I don't know if you're like me, but I would like to, I would like God to ask me which specific crises I would choose for my children. Do you do that? Like, you, you know he does that, and so you're like, oh, no, I don't want them to have sex outside of marriage, and I don't want them to have a horrible disease, but they could struggle at work, and I want them to have maybe a bad teacher, but not too bad a teacher. Like, do you do that where you're, like, kind of praying over your children and your, your um, deal-making with God as if he's, I just think he's probably in heaven laughing at me going, yeah, you don't even know. You don't know what it's going to take to bring your child to know me and to depend on me, but I do. And so I'm going to decide what is best for your child. Are you like me? Does that like scare you to death as you think about that? Like, okay, God, I trust you with all the world, but with my precious babies, please be gentle. You know, that's, I, I think I, it's hard to raise kids in Babylon. Um, there's so much out there, and there's so much even in their own hearts that scares me. And I know God is going to bring the trials. I know that sorrow is a part of life. And I can even look at my own testimony and see how God brought hardship into my life as part of drawing me into a deeper relationship with him. But it takes so much more faith to trust my children to the Lord. And even as I say that, that seems crazy, like it does, but it's true. Um, I wish God wouldn't have to bring trials. I wish he wouldn't have to bring suffering. And I was in the car with some, um, a, Zane is six. He's our six-year-old, and he had a friend in the car. And the friend in the car asked Zane, he said, why doesn't God just destroy Satan? And Zane, who's wiser than his years, said, well, God's waiting to bring his kingdom down out of the clouds. And I thought, right, he's waiting. He's waiting, and all of this pain and all of this suffering and this sorrow has a purpose, and we have to hold on to that. Um, I recently read um, The Fault in Our Stars. Have any of you guys read that, The Fault in Our Stars, or seen the movie? It, it, if you haven't, I'm not recommending it or not recommending it. I'm just going to tell you. It was a phenomena this summer. It was a book that all the teen girls particularly were reading, but even some of the schools. My daughter Tears' school required her to read it. And The Fault in Our Stars is all about that suffering. It's suffering because it's two um, teenagers who, well, who have cancer. Um, one is in remission and one is going to die. And so it's this overarching theme over the book and the movie is that there's a death is imminent. And so, um, in fact, the main character, whose name is Hazel Grace, she's the girl in the book, and she describes herself as a grenade that's going to go off, and she wants to limit the number of casualties that her death is going to cause. And so, it's this um, really witty book. It's a book that um, my daughter just loved. And she asked me to read it because she wanted to be able to talk with me about it. And I didn't want to read it. I mean, come on. 
there's enough suffering in the world, right? Like, I don't want to read about these kids that are suffering with cancer. That just seems non-entertaining and not fun. And, and so I said, no, no, no. And she was like, please, please, please. And so I was like, a good mom would say, yes, okay. <laughs> so I read it. And, um, and I think why she loves it so much is there are all these really great witty quotes. And they're all over the web. And there are all these little pictures of all these um, cool quotes. And um, in the story, there are the two star-crossed lovers, Augustus Waters and Hazel Grace. And Augustus is determined to love Hazel Grace, who is determined not to let him love her. And so he just continually pursues her with this love. And I was watching the movie Friday night with Tirza and a friend, and the friend said, I really like the movie because it was a picture of the kind of love I want. You know, he was determined to love her. And even he's the quote that makes all little girls Twitter is, um, he says, you realize that trying to keep your distance from me will not lessen my affection for you. For you. All efforts to save me from you will fail. Okay, well, all of us want to be loved like that, right? I mean, that's the kind of love, and that's, the, that's what I think is resonating with, with the people that love this book, is that picture of love, a love that pursues you, a love that isn't dependent on your response. Are you being pretty enough? He loved her with this disease that made her have to carry around an oxygen tank and made her puffy because of the medicine, and he loved her just the way she was and made her feel beautiful. And so I think that the teen girls read that, and they just kind of their heart pitter-patters, and they really like it, right? And it is inspiring. We all want to be loved like that. So in that respect, the book has, has, a, has a point or it resonates because of it. Um, the thing about the book that, and the movie, so when I say the book, it's the book and the movie, it was written for young adult, adult audiences. And so definitely it tries to keep that edge. So there's cursing for sure. The, the Starcrest lovers do have sex in the book. It's not terribly graphic, but it is, they have it in the book and it's more graphic in the movie. Um, and you definitely see cancer up close and personal. They don't hold back anything. And the suffering is very, very graphic, especially in the book. And you read it, and there's all of this focus on death and dying and suffering. And there's no hope. There's no hope. Um, the main characters talk about death as entering oblivion. And it... I read the book, and I was so grieved as I'm reading, reading this book because you love Hazel and Augustus Waters. You love them, and you want them. Jesus loves you. You know, you're reading the book, and you're like, I know they're fictional, and I know they're not real, but I want them to know that this isn't the end, and, and this isn't all there is, that God can redeem your suffering, and he is good. And so... As I was talking with Tirza about this book and as I was thinking about, I wanted to share it with you guys because I do think if it's a book your children have read or is or required to read later, I do want to encourage you to enter into it because I think that this book, one of the major messages is so anchored in Babylon. It's a Babylonian worldview. It's that you are defined by your circumstances and that's all there is. And that's what the world around us is telling our kids. And it's a hopeless message. 
Um, and it grieves me. And so I, we have to enter into it, parents. We have to be able to speak into it. And we have to be able to take Christ into the hopelessness and say, no, this is not the end. It is, we don't enter oblivion. God promises us in his word, word that this suffering is just for a moment. But what is to come is eternal. And he will redeem. He can redeem even cancer. Um, and so I think it's important that we share with our kids the hope that we have. But there's a danger there, right? Like the danger is that we're putting a rainbow sticker on cancer, right? Like I hate it when I hear Christians say, oh, well, it's going to be okay. That's not true. I mean, Ultimately, yes. Eternally, yes. For sure, we have a hope. But in this moment, it can stink. And it can get worse before it gets better. And sometimes death is the result. And that is hard. And it's awful. And it's terrible. And so I think what the church has not done a great job of when we have spoken about these trials and these troubles is we haven't done a great job of being real in it. And so I challenge you, as you're talking to your teen about the events of the world or things going on in the Middle East or these stories or things in culture, to be real with them. I mean, I struggle to believe sometimes. And when I go and I see Kylie Myers and I see the pictures of her struggling with cancer, I grieve. And part of my testimony is when I was 12, my mom had a brain aneurysm. And so she almost died, and my whole security was taken out from underneath me. But I can look back on it and say that God used that to bring me to faith and to prepare me to marry Jeff at an early age. And so I see, now I see God's purpose in that. But at the time, I didn't. At the time, it was just awful having a mom who was sick. And so sometimes we just have to be quiet in the face of suffering and just pray for them and I think when we're talking to our kids about it, we have to, yes, say God has a purpose, but not say that like a rainbow sticker. Does that make sense? And then the other thing is, is I think we have to be honest and share our own doubts and our own fears. Um, for me, when the McNeelys, Judith and David, lost their baby, I struggled. I didn't understand God's timing, and I was mad at him over it. And then my very good friend has CF, and, and she was in the hospital, and she had a toddler, and they, the news was not good. And I remember sitting there holding her baby who had gone to sleep on me and, and railing at God and going, God, do you not know this baby needs her mama? And so... I think it's important that as we share and talk about suffering with our team, that we're honest. It's hard some days to believe, right? I mean, you guys struggle. It's not just me, right? It's hard. But at the end of the day, we're like the disciples. We go to Jesus and we go, where else do we have to go? I don't understand. And I don't know why Kylie has, has cancer or why my friend has CF or why things are happening in the Middle East. I don't get it. So, Lord, in the end of the day, help my unbelief. Give me faith where there is doubt and give me strength and help me to depend on you and to trust that you have something past this that I can hold on to. Um, the last 
thought is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, and I'm going to put a pause in there, it doesn't feel momentary, but it is when we look eternally. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And so my prayer for us as parents is that we will hold on to the unseen. And we will be able to engage our teens with discussions that will Point them to the unseen, the eternal, that is past this moment of suffering. Let's pray together. Dear God, it's just hard. And the suffering and the sin that is in this world and and the grief and the sorrow and the sickness, it is hard. And our comfort is that you know because you walked this earth and you saw the sorrow And you saw man created for so much more than what we can have in this broken world. And so, Lord, we just cling to you right now. We cling to you as your children, and we cling to you as the parents of children. Lord, help us. Help our unbelief. Help us when we doubt. Help us when in the face of sorrow and suffering we want to shake our fist at you. Um, I know we don't get to do that because you're God and we're not. And I just pray that you would give us unshakable faith and give our teens a perspective that looks past the circumstance to eternity when you will make all things right, when people with CF will no longer have it, when legs will be restored and hurting will stop and cancer will be no more. And we can dwell with you eternally. And enjoy your presence. I admit, Lord, that is unfathomable to me. So help me to look past it in the moment and give me glimpses of it even now as we go into worship and you prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Parent University Podcast. Parent U is a part of the student ministries at Perimeter Church in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit the Student Ministries website at www.perimeter.org students for more information. Thank you.